The Lord be with you. Welcome to Thin Places, the podcast channel of St. Aidan's Anglican Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. I'm Father Lee, the pastor here at St. Aidan's, and I want to invite you to join me here each week as we join together to share common prayer, common worship, and common life. And just as the streams feed the trees on their banks till they pour in the seas, so may my life be to all those who share this wilderness road. All right, so we are like we said before, studying N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began. So I encountered this book, I think I, it had been out for a, for a, a little while uh, before that, but, um, and I was really, I'm trying to think what the right word is for it. I was, um, I was captivated by some of the questions that he was asking, because a lot of the questions that he asked, especially in, these, in, in, in this early section, were, um, you know, questions that I had been asking kind of uh, along the way as well, um, you know, especially about the way that we talk about the cross, because, you know, as he says early on in the book, the the story of the cross, it just permeates the culture that we live in there. You can't you can't go anywhere without seeing that people, you know, slap it up on on side of this wall and that wall and they, you know, put it on the 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 you know, the end of their billboard signs, and you see it in, in every church, and sometimes it's not even associated with a church, it's just a giant aluminum one, you know, looming over the top of the interstate, uh, you know, we just, we're, we're just surrounded by, by, by this image, and yet so often the image itself is sort of confused, like we, we, we put the cross up, but then we don't, we, we don't, we don't have a clear way of communicating what we mean by it. So it's a symbol, but it ends up being a symbol that doesn't have a consistent or concise or clear story that it's telling. Um, but what I appreciated in, in this book, and we're going to get more into this, you know, the, the further along we get, is that that same issue is one that it wasn't just me who was experiencing that sort of distress. It was something that lots of people have been have been wrestling with for for quite some time. And so N.T. Wright has his own thoughts and his own expressions, and he's going to root them in um, primarily in what is the biblical storytelling. So what does what what is the purpose and the effect of the cross located within the story that Scripture itself is telling and setting aside or maybe carving away some of the cultural baggage that we have. We've, we've got sort of our own assumptions about the way that the gospel works, uh, and we talked about that a little bit in, in our discussion of, of the book, The King Jesus Gospel, that we, we finished up a few weeks ago, um, that oftentimes we've made our own assumptions about what the gospel is and isn't, and sure enough, we, we can, you, you can see there's a lot of parallels between that book by, by Scott McKnight and some of the issues that N.T. Wright is addressing. Scott was talking more about the way that we, uh, the way that we proclaim the cross, but N.T. Wright is saying that not just is it about the way that we proclaim the cross, but what what do we mean when we're talking about the cross? What is this thing that stands so central in the midst of the world that we live in? So 
he starts off in chapter one. We're we're reading chapter one and chapter two, which are still uh, both both parts of the introduction. Um, and the the point that he's making uh, is that the cross is both it, well is bigger and more dangerous and more explosive than the assumptions that we often make about it. Um, he he says this on on page four that Jesus's followers saw it as more than just a pivotal moment in human history. They saw it as the vital moment, not just in human history, but in the entire story of God and the world. Indeed, they believed it had opened a new shocking window onto the meaning of the word God itself. They believed that this one, with this one event, the one true God had suddenly and dramatically put into operation his plan for the rescue of the world. They saw it as the day the revolution began. They saw the cross as the beginning of God's work, that God was unveiling in the death of Jesus uh, something that had been hidden or had been obscured or had been clouded from, uh, from people's eyes. So he talks uh, a, a little bit after that about... Um, about the different ways that we focus our attention on the cross. He's, he's got a, a story here uh, from somebody in, the, in, in the, the church army and kind of the way that they talked about uh, using the cross, especially using the cross in evangelism. But then he talks about all of the ways that the cross shows up in popular culture, um, artistically and, uh, and, and musically, and you know, just all of these, these various different depictions of, of what the cross is. <clears throat> and then on page nine, he says this, just as the world as a whole, whether Christian or not, dates itself by Jesus's birth, so the reflective world, whether Christian or not, regularly finds that the story of his death in art, music, or literature provides a unique focal point for the dark dilemma of human existence and also a shining light to guide us through. A shining, so it reveals both the darkness in ourselves and also some sort of hope that is breaking in on the darkness of our, uh, of, of our present world. Um, and so he, he describes this as containing within it sort of an evocative power. There is just a narrative, like a storytelling power that exists in the cross. It's, it, 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 is, it, it contains within itself this ability to tell a story and to engage the listener in a story in a way that the other events just don't. He talks uh, more about literature as as this chapter goes on, and then he moves into uh, in, into some of the the hymns that he used to sing. And some of these are not hymns that I would sing growing up. Um, our hymnal, you know, in the in, in the Baptist church was was focused on the cross, but it was focused on the cross in a very particular like uh, segment of time. Um, not meaning the segment of time of the cross, but like the segment of time in which those hymns were authored. They, you know, there's <laughs> the Fanny Crosby era of hymn writing, uh, yeah. you know, right, right there, right, right there around 1900, you know, give or take 30 years on either side of that, but right in that chunk there. And the way that they describe the cross in those hymns is very, very specific. But when you look at some of the, the hymns that he's got listed here, uh, my song is love unknown, the green hill far away, I do remember Isaac Watts when I surveyed the wondrous cross. We, we often did that one. That one's a little bit earlier. 
Uh, but these are just powerful hymns that describe what is going on. But this is the part that I loved. He talked about the, the liturgy, and this is the liturgy that um, that, that we use on Sunday. Actually, we're using this, the, the, just an, an updated version of this liturgy right now in, in, our, in our Lenten tie, because the, the liturgy that we use is the 1662 uh, Common Prayer Book. And so he talks about the way that the, 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 the worship of the church, the historic worship of the church, retells the story of the cross. And these are Thomas Cranmer's original, uh, original words at the, at the center of the communion service. Almighty God, who of thy tender mercy toward mankind didst give thy son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. This is on page 16. He explains the love of God and the death of Jesus. That is what this is all about, the love of God and the death of Jesus. But then he moves on just a little bit over onto the next page. And he says, now granted that the story of Jesus's crucifixion as portrayed in the gospels and in art and in literature seems to have a power to move and console and challenge people across widely different times and places and cultures. What is it about this story and particularly about the event itself that carries this power? What is it about the cross that has this incredible power to challenge people and to motivate people and to change people. So that's what he's going to talk about in chapter two, this idea of wrestling with what the cross is and with what the cross means. What is it about this, this thing? Because on the face of it, this is just a revolutionary religious leader in the first century who was tortured to death by, uh, by, by an empire uh, that, that he and his followers were standing up against. On the face of it, that's all that the story is. But what is it about this story that moves us into uh, a new way of thinking about who we are and, of course, about who Jesus is? At the bottom of uh, page 19, he says, The very mention of crucifixion was taboo in polite Roman circles, since it was the lowest form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and rebels. As for the Jews, the very idea of a crucified Messiah was scandalous. A crucified Messiah was a horrible parody of the kingdom dreams that many cherished. It immediately implied that Israel's national hope was being radically redrawn downward. So there's no sense in, in either of the cultures of the time that this ought to have been a story that caught on. In fact, on the very next page, he's got a, a picture of graffiti from, from, the, from the second century. Um, or from the third century in, in Rome, where people are literally explicitly mocking the idea of a God who is crucified, a God who, whose victory is somehow tied to his being crucified, publicly murdered by the Roman Empire. Uh, so what is it that, that we're saying? There's, there has to be something else that is going on here. He says this on page, uh, on page 21. The resolute affirmation of the cross, not as an embarrassing episode best left on the margin, but as the mysterious key to the meaning of life, God, the world, and human destiny. 
that's the Christian story, that somehow this event that is tragic, that ought to be something that we shun and, and push away, stands at the very center and, in fact, is the key to understanding who we are and who God is and what all of that means for us. That's the story that Christians are telling. And, of course, it doesn't make any sense outside of the Christian context, and yet there is still this power in the story of the cross. So what he wants us to do is to is to understand what it is that's going on in in the cross. And this is a long chapter, and I know that there were a lot of different uh, a, a lot of information. Some of it may have been new to you, and some of it may have been you know old hat that that you know stuff that you guys have have read and done before. But he spends a chunk of time in the middle of the book talking about what what we call theories of atonement uh, and how these theories of atonement develop. So the first thing that he points out is that in the early church fathers, the, the, the atonement theory, which just means how do we understand what the cross accomplished? What did the cross accomplish? The atonement theories that, that, we, that show up in the early church um, happen in, in three particular ways. Um, so the first is that through the cross, God secured victory over the powers of evil. The second theme that shows up in, in the early church is that Jesus died in our place so that we do not need to experience death. And then there's a third one uh, that, that shows up, and that is that Jesus's death was in some way sacrificial. So those three things, that it's God's victory over evil, that it's, it, it's Christ dying in our place, suffering death in our place, and that this death is somehow sacrificial. But the thing is that, that those those core concepts then got developed more and more later on, and especially happened in the Western church. So we have two guys that show up uh, who are going to redefine some of that discussion for us, and that's Anselm and Abelard. So Anselm uh, is the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, um, and he is the one who at the very beginning sort of comes up with this idea of satisfaction because in in his world in his culture at the time the idea of honor and especially public honor was hugely important and so he explained the the crucifixion in terms of god uh god's honor being um uh you know messed up somehow that God's honor has been impugned by human sin, and that the balance needs to be restored. Um, and the way that balance is restored is by death. And so Christ steps in and satisfies the debt, the, the balance that, that, that is owed to God. And so we, uh, we, we have, uh, I don't know, equality maybe is a good way to, to, to describe that, or at least we have, we, we have a return to, uh, to a previous arrangement. Uh, the other side of that is, is a monk whose name was Abelard, and he comes up with the idea that the cross teaches us how to love each other. Now, it's important to point out that both of those are true in a, in a sense, okay? We can find both of those in, in, in the writings of the, uh, of the early church, those three models that we just showed, that, that the cross was victory over evil, that Christ died, died in our place, uh, that, that his death was sacrificial. All of those have to do with teaching us how to love. They all have, have to do with uh, some, some sort of satisfaction. But the trouble is that those theories became meta-narrative in, in, the, in, in the world of, of that time. They became the only lens 
through which people could understand and could talk about the cross. And there were more theories that then began to develop alongside those uh, the, that, that, made it e that, that brought us even farther away from the biblical image, the early church image of what the cross was and what the cross accomplished. And so then the Reformation occurs and the reformers uh, you know, step in and, and they want to, uh, you know, they're not spending as much time talking about, uh, you know, getting to heaven when you die necessarily. They're, they want to talk about what it is that, that saves people. And it's not what they do, it's who God is. And so they then put all of their emphasis on, on other models, new models uh, that, that are, you know, more similar to the ones that Anselm had developed. Um, and they, they, they put all of their emphasis on this. And so what ends up happening is that, again, we continue moving farther and farther away from the biblical image, the image in the early church of what the cross accomplished. They keep pushing us further and further into extremes. It's one theory and then one interpretation of a theory and then one specific way of describing the interpretation of that one specific theory. And we end up way, way off of where we were originally supposed to be. And unfortunately, we have ended up in these very niche minutiae of atonement theories that just simply don't look biblical anymore, where they end up causing us to say things about God and about ourselves and about creation that just aren't true. So the purpose of this book is to create space for us to say, where did these stories come from? Where, how did we end up saying these things about who God is and what God is at work doing? And if those things aren't true, what does it look like for us to step back from, the, from, from that edge? What does it look like for us to come away from that, uh, from, from that world? How do we walk back from that? So I want to look at something that he says on page 34. So he talks about this a little bit in Surprised by Hope, which we read together as a, as a church two or three years ago. But this is uh, about halfway down the page on 34. Once we say the aim of God's saving plan is the new heaven and the new earth with resurrected bodies for his redeemed people, then the means by which we are brought to that goal, leaving sin and death behind, has to be rethought as well. Atonement, how humans are rescued from their plight and restored to their intended place within the loving and creative purposes of God, must dovetail with eschatology, what God ultimately intends for the world and for humans. And if we rethink our eschatology, as I have been trying to do over the last decade or so, we must rethink our view of atonement as well. In fact, the two go together very closely in the New Testament. The cross was the moment when something happened as a result of which the world became a different place, inaugurating God's future plan. The revolution became there, then, and there. Jesus' resurrection was the first sign that it was indeed underway, and that is what the present book is about. Okay, the day the revolution began, he says, is that it is that at the cross something happened, and as a result of what happened at the cross, the world is now 
a different place. Not the world will someday be a different place, but that right here, right now, the world is a different place because of what happened at the cross. And understanding what that is and what that means then and now is what's going to make up the, the bulk of the text that we're going to be reading together. Okay. So here's the question that I had for us. Um, and maybe this will inform that that will inform some of this. I want you to think back to your earliest encounter with the message of the cross. So, like the 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 first time that you remember understanding the cross as central to the Christian faith. Okay, not you know the way that you understand it now. You know, not completely and fully developed it. But can you remember a time in your life where you suddenly where suddenly something clicked for you and you said? I now understand what the cross means. And if you think about one of those things happening, was the encounter that you had, would you describe that encounter as being positive or being negative? What were some of the feelings that were associated with your first encounter with the cross? Was it awe or fear or love or devotion? I'll, st I'll start off so we have some kind of, uh, under I know it's kind of a, a, an out there question. Um, the first time that I remember understanding what the cross meant, um, I was in maybe third or fourth grade, I think. Uh, there was this uh, a radio program that, that Focus on the Family used to put out that was called Adventures in Odyssey. Um, and they were, you know, just like radio plays with you know a bunch of kids and there's always you know a moral at the end of it but they had this uh they had this contraption in in the radio show that was called the um like the imaginarium or the imagination station or something like that but the kids could go in it and then they would they, they would be like transported in their imagination to a different place in a different time and they could interact with people and 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 in one of these little radio dramas the kids were were at the cross and there was something about like hearing hearing the story of the cross told by kids as though they were there um something about that clicked in me and 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 i remember crying and then my dad coming in and sitting with me and i said why would jesus do that for us why would he let people do that to him and I remember my, my, my dad explaining to me, he did that because he loves us. And he did that so that we could be with him. Um, but I just remember so much confusion at that time that this, that like, that, that this is what God does. I just, I, I, it, I could not wrap my head around this idea of, of, of God embracing death, of Jesus embracing death when he didn't have to, he could have not done that and then doing it. And it was so confusing to me, uh, you know, because also, I mean, that, that's that point in your life where you're, you're starting to understand kind of, you know, what, what death is and how that works. And so the idea of that entering into like, you know, the religious story, because, you know, I was, I, I, I grew up in churches. And so, um, but for me, that was the first time that I remember uh, really encountering the, what, what N.T. Wright is going to call the message of the cross. What about you guys? Do you guys have any um, any recollection of the first time that you encountered something like that? 
I had all the discussion questions ahead, so I got to think about my story all week. You guys can <laughs> you guys can take a minute to sort of process through it. It's a hard one to think like when was it? When was the first time that I encountered the cross as the cross? You know, I remember seeing pictures of the cross like in a children's Bible when I was younger than that. But I, I think that at that, that time, you know, when I was in late elementary school, I think was the first time that I really like understood that, at least in some way. I don't know that it was the first time that I encountered the cross by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but the story that I'm thinking of is kind of, I thought of it when we were reading, when I was reading through the chapters where he talks about like violence and like how much we encounter violence and are able to see violence and experience violence and entertain ourselves with violence mm -hmm. and and all those kind of things and uh, one I grew up you know very mainline denomination United Methodist my grandfather was a Presbyterian so it was kind of just the same church vibes with slightly different background theologies but you know everything was kind of very similar um, but the church camp that we went to was very Southern Baptist, non-denominational, you know, non-denominational, but really it's just Southern Baptist. Um, and that was the first place that I encountered, like, someone telling this story about the crucifixion where they're like and this is what the whips looked like and this is what it would do to your skin oh, and this is what the crown of thorns would have done and this is how much blood there would have been and this is like like the in-depth like cell it was like and it felt so weird to me because you know i'm a teenager by this point mm. and encountering the story for the first time and it's like, but there's like this juxtaposition already in my mind between, you know, not only how horrible this was, but also how the way the story was told was almost a, a celebration of the violence. Like, yes, Jesus had to go through it, but does it really like did it did the violence have to be that graphic in order for what jesus did to matter mm -hmm. uh, it, it's kind of the same question that gets raised to me by um the passion of the christ movie is it's like is there more there than i need mm -hmm. um and maybe there is and maybe mm -hmm. there isn't but it it kind of walks this line of being uncomfortable um and it should be uncomfortable, but maybe it's, but I'm kind of uncomfortable because it's almost like a celebration of the vibe. I don't know. So, mm -hmm. so to me, I don't know that's, it's not, I don't know that that's the first time I really, you know, encountered the cross in a quote unquote meaningful way, but it's a time where I true, where I encountered mm -hmm. the cross in a different way mm -hmm. that was maybe positive and maybe negative. I'm not really <laughs> sure. Right. Yeah, because I definitely think that that is an aspect of, of the way that we culturally, um, especially in, in sort of, you know, broad church evangelicalism, 
talk about the cross. There, there's definitely, when you said a celebration of the violence, it's almost like we, we imagine, I, I, I feel like it's the same impulse of, of people that are protesting abortion and they do it by showing dismembered bodies. Um, and, and, and that in, in the same way is always, it has, has always been, I've found offensive not because I affirm abortion, I, I oppose it always, all the time, but I don't think that that's the way to oppose it. I think that there needs to be a, a way of telling that story. And it seems like the idea is, oh, well, if I just show you how shocking this is, then you'll believe me. Um, and, and there is, you know, it's, it's like it becomes a rhetorical device, right? Like it's, it's just a way of convincing. Uh, convincing that 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 my my version of the story is correct, um, when when that's you know I mean you think about like you mentioned the Mel Gibson movie right and the Bible has two sentences in it about the flogging but his flogging goes on for forty two minutes in the movie so like a third of the movie is just people beating Jesus in in the worst way possible even though that's not the focus of Scripture. Uh, and certainly what, you know, and he's, he's on the cross in scripture for nine hours. So, you know, like, why, why is that not the bulk of the movie? Why, why didn't we just spend all that time there? But, you know, but, but it's what you're saying. It's there's, we, we imagine that there is a rhetorical power to, to describing or depicting uh, that kind of violence that I just think is, um, I think it shows our deficiency in understanding the real power of the cross. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but when you hear the the phrase "the death of Jesus" or "the cross," are there particular words or images that pop into your mind when you hear somebody say "the death of Jesus"? You hear somebody say "the cross." Is there a picture that that comes to mind when you hear those those words? I think I've been spoiled by Saint Aidan's because whenever I whenever I hear those phrases, I either picture I picture the two crosses that are on stage right now. There's either the version, the 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 risen the, the risen Christ crucifix in the the San Damiano, uh, or the or or the cross that we made out of those uh, those thorn trees we cut down out at Andy's farm. Those are the, those are those two images. When I think the cross, I'm like, oh, that that's just what pops into my mind is one of one of those two or the both of those two together. I'm not sure about the death of Jesus. If somebody says the death of Jesus, I don't know if there's a go-to image in my brain. I don't know. What about you guys? I guess for me, the primary image, um, which is strange since I definitely did not grow up Catholic, is the typical image, uh, Catholic uh, statutory icon image of mm -hmm. Christ hung up on the cross. Right. That's everywhere. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of just what I think of. Mm -hmm. uh, and then as a sort of secondary one that might sometimes pop in behind that one, it would be a picture of a, probably entirely inaccurate and formed by a combination of children's books and old Cecil B. DeMille movies and the Jesus of Nazareth movie and whatnot of uh, two men, lighter than they should be, uh, carrying Jesus jesus's body into a tomb and rolling a giant circular stone in front of it oh okay mm -hmm. so those are kind of the two images that pop into my mind like i said the the catholic uh image of 
or I should say the Roman image of uh, Jesus on the cross with the crown of thorns. Mm -hmm. And then secondary to that, the uh, placement in the tomb. Mm. Way back at the beginning of this section, this is on page uh, four or five. This is the, yeah, the bottom of page four and then, and then moving on to moving on to the next page. He says, like most Christians today, I started my thinking about Jesus's death with the assumption from what I'd been taught that the death of Jesus was all about God saving me from my sin so I could go to heaven. That of course can be quite a revolutionary idea for somebody who's never thought about it before, but it's not quite the revolution that the early Christians were talking about. Does that resonate with you? Does that does that sound like your experience early on? You know, with uh, with with what Jesus's death looked like. It's like this is this is God did this to save me from my sins, so I could go to be with Him in heaven. Yes, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. Like Jeremiah said, I know it's not my first encounter with the cross or, or the idea of it, but at church camp, um, we did the whole altar call thing, but they did it in the middle of the night. They woke us all up. They took us down to the tabernacle. They had a big cross set up. And wow. if you, if if Jesus came in the night, would you, you know, do you know where you would go? That kind of thing. Oh man. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think uh, for sure what you just read um, resonates for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was definitely presented as this is a soul saving kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm interested to hear the, the last section of chapter two talks a lot about the, um, the, the angry God, right? Have you ever, have you ever had, I'm, I'm sure that we've all encountered this, um, you know, just with, with, you know, image and media saturation being what it is. I'm, I'm sure we've encountered this before, but have you ever been in a community or, or been a part of a group where, where that idea of, of an angry God who's determined, like his his goal in in existence is to punish you for wrongdoing, um, where that was like the the normal way of talking about who God is or what God does. I'm sure it, it usually isn't described that way. There are a few, you know, really aberrant pseudo Christian groups where they literally talk about God in that way. Usually, people that 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 hold to to that way of talking about uh, atonement theory. They, they wouldn't describe it that way, but I, you know, but when you break it down, that's ultimately what they're talking about. Has anybody experienced that? I've never been a part of a church, like over the long term, that has presented the gospel in that way. Um, but I've definitely been in situations where God has been betrayed that way. Um, you know, one of the things they like to do here in our portion of the Midwest and again, Southern Baptist churches, um, <laughs> is they do these things called hell houses where they tell you about why you shouldn't go to hell. <laughs> right. And, you know, there's all sorts of terribleness about it. Like you didn't text your friend, you love them, and then you died. And so that sin was so terrible. Now you're going to hell or, mm -hmm. you know, it was always something ridiculous. Um you know, all these teenagers were having abortions or, you know, who knows what. Uh, and so the entire point was, it was like scared straight, except for Jesus. Uh, but the, the climax of the event, the hope of the event is they end up in the, you know, the 
traditional courtroom and there's some yeah. fat white guy playing God with a big white beard up in a judge's thing who's so angry at everybody all the time. And then Jesus steps in and is like, but daddy, I died for them. Um, and so, so that kind of thing, just like, I feel like it permeates like culture that I grew up in. And so mm -hmm. like, it was common for me to be in situations where people were like, you know, God will smite you for that, or mm -hmm. God is punishing me for, or will that happen to you because of this other thing you did because you made God angry. Um, and so it becomes this like, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, you know, dangling over the precipice of hell um, kind of moment, which I always love to read that because it always like says out loud what people around me won't say out loud, but that they really think in their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, so that's like something that I feel like was very much a part of, you know, the way that Christianity is understood in the context in which I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, even though for the most part the churches i the churches i went to didn't concentrate on that part it was still understood like underneath everything like it was all about behaving correctly mm -hmm. because even like basic simple things like how you should act in public or how you know how you should speak to your elders or you know how you should treat those in authority or all mm -hmm. of those things are all pile all that social stress is all piled in mm -hmm. based upon this fact that god is just looking for a reason mm -hmm. to get you because that's what like it's almost like that's his goal is to get you mm -hmm. and then jesus's goal is that after you're gotten that he's gonna help Unget you, or right. or something like that. Yeah. So let's let, let's talk a little bit about the end of chapter two, because at the end of chapter two, he has that phrase that you know, you may have heard him say this in in another context, um, but it 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 is it is eye catching when you when when you read it in the text. Um, you know, he he explains that John three sixteen says, "God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." Look at the two verbs: God so loved the world that He gave His Son. The trouble with the popular version that that N.T. Wright describes is that it can easily be heard as saying instead, "God so hated the world that He killed His only Son," and that doesn't sound like good news at all. Um, you know, and what Jeremiah mentioned, he mentions here as well that so often the way that we talk about God and the way that we talk about punishment, and especially because we've we've married this together in in the sense of of my sin, my salvation, my heaven, my hell, my eternal destiny. And it's it's so deeply individualistic that then this whole thing gets wrapped up in in the ways that we express and the ways that we exert power and authority and privilege. Um, the, the ways that we enact ourselves in public, all of that 
it's sort of tied together in, in, in these ideas. Back on page uh, 35, 30, 35, yeah. So he's talking about the, the idea of um, when, you know, in, in the, the Roman Catholic dogma sort of moved away from talking about purgatory. Uh, you know, in response to the Reformation, they sort of downplayed that. There were there were some places where that was still a thing, and you know, it, it was it it still remains official uh, official dogma in the church. Um, you know that that's still the truth, but there's not as much emphasis on that as as there was during the time of the reformers. But they say he says here at the bottom, but this idea that the reformers came up with to get rid of that notion, this this doctrine called penal substitution found a new home in Western piety. This is at the bottom of 35. It focused not on God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven, but on my sin, my heavenly, that is non-worldly salvation, and of course, my Savior. This indeed presses a particular question on us. If many of our contemporary ideas about what was achieved on the cross belong to a 19th century view of sinners being saved and going to heaven, what might the cross mean for the earlier view in, the in which the gospel is transforming the whole world? So it's almost as though you have these two competing visions of what the cross is and what the cross accomplished in the midst of all of that other, you know, muddle, muddle mess. You have, you have this medieval Roman version of what the cross is doing. And you have, uh, you, you have multiple ways that the, the, the reform, none of the reformers agreed with each other on what the cross accomplished. Uh, so you have the Anglican vision over on this side and you have Luther over on this side and you have Calvin over here and you've got Zwingli doing who knows whatever it is that Zwingli's doing often often left field because you know he's a he's a wild card every topic you just give he you never know what Zwingli's going to say next but they're all doing these different things they're all going in different directions you've got all of these competing visions and then there's this one vision of penal substitution that like rises up to the surface and I would suggest, and this is, you know, based on some of the other conversation that we have, that it's tied to uh, the rise in dispensationalist theology in in the in in the U.S. Uh, as well as uh, as well as revivalistic culture in in the in in the Western world. Uh, oh. That all of those sort of together begin 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 pooling, and 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 so that becomes the primary way that we talk about this. And yet, it doesn't seem like you can effectively talk about penal substitution theory this this idea that that we uh that that our sin has to be punished by god with death and that unless god punishes sin with death then god can't be good or just or righteous or holy or something this idea that that we have a sentence hanging over our head and that jesus takes the takes the blow on our behalf penal substitution is so central that it's almost as though when when you say the story of the cross is about god creating the world anew that god begins his new creation in the resurrection and that the new creation begins there and continues forward to its ultimate revelation to its ultimate consummation but that God's kingdom is being revealed now. It's almost as though those are two completely different crosses, two completely different gospels that are being proclaimed. So when you hear that phrase, 
um, you know, God so hated the world that he killed his son versus God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What are what are the the differences? What's at stake in between those two versions of of what happens at the cross? I would kind of say almost everything mm -hmm. um, because that goes to a fundamental discussion of who God is as he's revealed himself to us. Mm -hmm. And in the biblical version, that is the version of the true God whom we should worship. The other version, if that's the view we hold to, that's idolatry and it goes to the very aspect of putting not god in the place where god should be and you reflect what you worship hmm. so if you worship the god that hated the world so much that he was going to kill something and it just happened to be a son because his son loved us enough to get in the way hmm. what's that going to say about what you reflect out into the world around you and so you i mean there's very much an aspect of the penal substitution that has to be kept that is biblical that is true but it is always and forever subsumed and bound within the god so loved the world that he gave his son mm -hmm. something had to happen and God chose to have that happen to himself as opposed to letting it happen to us. There is a huge difference there. And I've seen sort of the cultures that can come out of both those views, whether or not they're, they say either one explicitly, you can see the difference in, I guess, atmosphere around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate on on page 43 that he that that N.T. Wright points out that that in response to the angry despot god in our culture today we've got like this the, this equal and opposite reaction to the angry despot god which he calls the indulgent elderly relative god. <laughs> it doesn't quite roll off the tongue uh, as, as easily, but this idea that you've got this, you know, this elderly relative he does, who doesn't want to spoil anybody's fun and just tolerates everything. And I love this phrase. He, Wright has used this phrase elsewhere, but he points out again here, if there's a God and he doesn't hate injustice and child prostitution and genocide and lots of other things at well, then he's not a very good God. It's hard to call a God good who doesn't hate evil. And the trouble with the indulgent God is that he doesn't hate evil, and so he's not really good. And, of course, the trouble with the, the angry despot God is that he hates everything and is not very good either. You, you have two gods that, that are, are not the God of Scripture, not, not a yeah. God of, of justice, not a God of holiness, not a God of righteousness, and not a God who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Probably the best example of that, uh, of the, I guess, indulgent older relative uh, version would be the Morgan Freeman God from Bruce Almighty. <laughs> right. Which was surprisingly unhorrifically bad. 
<laughs> compared to a lot of other depictions that have come out around the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, still almost wholly wrong, mm-hmm. but... <laughs> mm-hmm. With your original question, what I was thinking of is that there's... We can see it as... Are we... Is the church or is Christianity more a hospital for sinners where we treat sin and try and, you know, heal people and bring them into a closer relationship with God, or is it more of a prison camp where we punish people Mm -hmm. to deal with their sin and try and purge them of their sin? Mm -hmm. I think that's what we get out of it, or, you know, or deliverance ministry where we smack the sin out of people (laughs) and scream at them until, you know, they stop sinning. Right. Yeah, I can't help but keep contrasting both of those versions, the, you know, the, the, the soft sentimental elder, which kind of looks like Abelard, and then the angry despot, which kind of looks like, uh, you know, like, uh, oh, now his name's gone. Anselm. Anselm. I'm like, I've got his book right here on my bookshelf above my computer somewhere, <laughs> but I can't remember his little name. Yeah, Anselm. So, so, but, but his, now this, the, this is, the, this is, wildly untrue of uh, i say i say this for us and for anybody ever in the future that listen to this this is not fair to either elm anselm or abelard because neither of them believed these things about god they they both were deeply trinitarian they both were deeply uh deeply affected they they both worshiped constantly and consistently so but but the end result of their stories does end up with with, the, with with either a God that has to be satisfied ends up in this in, in this realm of the angry despot or the God who only dies in order to teach us how to love ends up in this in, in this, you know, impotent, uh, you know, impotent, you know, old friend over on the other side, the the, you know, the. Either either the the doty the, the doty grandparent or the abusive father. We 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 have these two you know these two drastic extremes that come because we walked away from the way that Scripture and the early church fathers taught about what happened at the cross, and that was first that the cross is a victory. Second, that the that that the cross is is in some way an atonement. Jesus is dying on our behalf. And third, that the cross is a sacrifice, that God is in Christ making a sacrifice. Now, in the next section of the book, not the next chapter, but in the next section of the book, he is going to do a deep dive into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So just spoiler alert, the version of that that you have probably heard in your church does not necessarily line up with how it actually worked in the Old Testament. I only say that because I had to reread this section over and over again my first time through because it was, I I was like, I didn't understand any of those things about the the Jewish sacrificial system and what it meant and why things meant the things that they meant. Because we, you know, like we so often do, right? We, We take our own assumptions and our own value system and we just sort of project it backwards onto them. We say, well, this is what sacrifice looks like in in the in the cultures of my world so that must be what it meant in in the jewish culture or this is 
is what sacrifice looked like in ancient Egypt and in ancient uh, Greece. So this is what it meant like in the Jewish context, and it didn't. Their, their sacrificial system worked differently. And so when we say that Jesus's death was sacrificial, it means something different oftentimes than what you and I typically meant by it, or especially what you and I have have heard it means from other people. So just a just a heads up that's coming down the uh, coming down the pike. So the next time that we gather, we're going to discuss chapter three, and that will close out section one. And then we're also going to read chapter four. So that's going to move us into in accordance with the Bible. So we're going to locate the story of Jesus within the story of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Since since all of us here are the entire group from our last book study, does the, does that phrase sound familiar to everyone? <laughs> we're going to locate the story of the cross within the story of Israel. So we're going to finish up this section, uh, the cross in its first century setting, and then we're going to start to understand what what does what what does sacrifice and what does atonement mean within the the Jewish model of of worship, and what does it look like to then locate Jesus in that intersection between his first century uh, pagan world and the first century Jewish world, uh, which is, of course, exactly where where the, the, the day at the foot of the cross begins. Uh, but before we, before we close, does anybody have any thoughts or is there anything that we, I know there was a bunch of stuff in this chapter and you know, I, we, because we're moving a little bit faster, we don't get to touch on every single point, but was there something that you guys really liked or you wanted to discuss that we didn't have time to get to this, uh, this afternoon? I guess with a lot of the talk about the atonement theory aspects, especially with what came out from uh, the Reformation era and later, which is working out of what came out of the Reformation era, because apparently we just can't seem to leave the 16th century here in the right. West. I, I like that he pointed out that the reformers were, there was this sentence he used. I don't feel like looking it up right now, but it was mm -hmm. basically where he said, yeah, they provided biblical answers to 16th century questions. Right. Mm -hmm. So in, if we're trying to find answers to biblical questions, maybe we should ask the biblical questions and not the insert a century here mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, it's, he's like, if you're going to ask 16th century questions, yes, provide biblical answers. That's a good mm -hmm. thing. Right. But maybe don't develop your theology off of mm -hmm. the wrong questions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say and then ask a question. I wanted to say mm -hmm. that it's only been probably for me within the last maybe decade, but maybe not even that long, that um, what Wright says is the actual biblical understanding of all of this uh, has even entered into my consciousness at all and I never thought that I grew up in a church uh, setting that was focused so much on like the, the penal substitution um, theology but once I've um, been introduced to, to the alternative I just my mind is literally blown every time I come across it mm -hmm. and I just is <laughs> am I alone in this or have you all okay <laughs> no, that's, that's pretty much how I grew up too yeah. okay uh, my my feeling is honestly, if if you are at church in America, right? So he he said something about this. Um, I'll, I'll I'll keep talking while I look for it because it was a fantastic quote. Um, but my my feeling is that if you grew up in in a Christian context in America, 
uh, then, then what you encountered was penal substitution and nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, unless, uh, unless you grew up in some liturgical circles. But honestly, you're, you're still going to run into a lot of the penal substitution stuff, even in the Roman side. The, the, it's, it, it's so pervasive in American culture that it has, you know, that, that it's moved into even the, the Roman Catholics against whom the theory was developed. But now it's sort of, it's, it's moved over in that direction uh, in, in such a way, right? But this is, this is on, on page, let me see, um, in four, this was page 41. He says, he says at the top of it, he says, my point is this, the present generation has gazed with justified revulsion on the whole late modern culture of death and violence. And it's noticed worrying signs of the same culture in some expressions of Christianity. Many have pointed out that the traditional expressions of belief about Jesus's crucifixion sometimes mirror all too closely that language that has been used to justify violence, right? But on the page just before that one, okay, at the top of page 39, he says many preachers, you know, he describes what that, what that violence language is uh, at the bottom of 38. And the 39, many preachers put it more subtly than this, but it's still the story that people hear, and it's the story they expect to hear. In some churches, if you don't tell this story in more or less this way, people will say you aren't preaching the gospel. And so that's the tension right there that, that you're mentioning. Like on the one hand, you have people who say, well, if you don't tell the story in this way, then you're not preaching the gospel. And on the other side, you have people saying, I experienced violence and am horrified by the violence that I experienced in my life. And if you're saying that God treats people the way that my, and then they fill in the blank did, then whatever God it is that you worship is evil too. So like you have this, and, and we live in a culture where people have experienced and seen horrifying violence that has been perpetrated against them by authority figures, whether they are in their families or in their personal lives or in their professional lives or in their public lives. They've seen that kind of violence. And so we're, we, we end up being caught in between those two extremes where it's like, well, I just need to tell those people that God loves them. No, that's not that that's not the only the the onlyness of the gospel. But on the other side, you're like, you know, they they're, they're like, we just need to tell them that God hates sin. No, that's not the that that's not the core of the gospel. Neither of those is the whole story. Um, and we've you know that we we've got to find a way of telling the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished that allows us to speak truth to both of those sides, without getting sort of caught up in the excesses that happen on both ends of that spectrum yeah it's um i've actually seen uh, here recently a couple videos uh from i guess i don't know if they're it, i don't think it was a sermon setting but i think it was like a talk seminar type of setting with q a sessions afterwards with john MacArthur, and oh, like yeah. as the primary example mm -hmm. and you know i listen to him occasionally because he'll have good points but he's so ardent on one aspect penal substitution mm -hmm. that he's come down and actively denounced people like nt wright as heretics because they're not only about penal substitution mm -hmm. whereas nt wright has like i've seen a follow-up video where he's gone no if you take a partial truth and try to make it the whole truth then it becomes an untruth yep exactly He's like no penal substitution is an aspect of it and i'm not denying it i'm saying there's more to it mm -hmm.
and the way we present penal substitution is in fact incorrect. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, heresy. <laughs> Always a fun topic. <laughs> yeah, but like, because this is so new to me and I feel like, oh man, this is too good to be true. Therefore it, mm. it probably isn't true. And right. I should just go back to feeling guilty and shameful because <laughs> of all the things my sin has did to Jesus and all of that. And so, yeah, it, it is interesting to, um, to feel the tension of being pulled to the, the main way of thinking and, and like the biblical way of thinking feels somehow heretical. And I just, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree because that's, I mean, that's exactly what he describes there on, on the top of 39. And I just drew a big circle around that whole paragraph. I was like, yep, this, this, exactly this. It's like, if you don't preach this, th this version of this story in this way, people are like, well, that's not the gospel. I don't know. I don't know what that is. That's some, that, that's some, you know, touchy feely hippie nonsense, but that's, that's not Jesus. Um, <laughs> when, of course, when you go back and you read the church fathers, the early church, the way the, the way that they tell the story. That's that's the way that they tell the story. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna look more at that um, next week, and then in the week after that. Thank you for checking out Thin Places today. If you were blessed by your time with us and want to know more, check out Anchor.fm forward slash Thin Places. For more homilies, devotionals, and worship from St. Aidan's Church in Nicholasville, Kentucky. And make sure to follow us and leave a comment. And join us again next time in common prayer, common worship, and common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.